You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Today's episode is going to be from our 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference that was held in November of 2018. It will feature the conversation that Advisory Committee Chairman Harvey Rishikoff, another frequent podcast guest, held with the Honorable Michael Chertoff, who is the Executive Chairman of the Chertoff Group and the former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security also has an event coming up. We're going to be having a breakfast on March 5th, 2019, in downtown D.C. at the University Club with Corinne Stone, the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Strategy and Engagement. You can check our website, AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity, where we'll be posting registration information shortly. And now enjoy the conversation with Michael Chertoff. And now we have sort of the cherry on the cake, which is known as Michael Chertoff. But first, thanks so much for doing this. Great, happy and to And more here. importantly, thank you for bringing Meryl, because she, as you know, is the, as we know, the brains of the outfit. Exactly. Michael, and, off. and all that she does with the judiciary. But Michael, why don't we first start with, um, you've written your book, which a number of people in the audience have, are reading, actually, and they actually paid for it. We Great. We to give it out. That's what, I, that's what I like to hear. We want to have the Chertoff family have a nice Hanukkah and Christmas. All right. So, um, I guess, what sort of motivated you to write this, and what did you see as the core themes that required you to articulate the, a vision? So, um, you know, I was um, head of the criminal division on September 11th. I had been in the job for about three months, and um, as I was driving into work that day, I had one of those old, you know, car phones, and I was talking to my deputy, and he said, a plane hit the World Trade Center. And like a lot of people, I thought, oh, some private small plane pilot got turned around and hit the, the building. And we continued to talk as I was arriving at work, and he said a second plane hit. And then we both realized that this was an attack. So I went over to the uh, FBI operations center with him, because in those days, there was no DHS. It was the Department of Justice that owned the responsibility for dealing with terrorism. And I went into the operations center and then spent the next 20 hours with someone whose name is familiar to you, Bob Mueller, um, who was an old friend. And uh, over the next year or two, we tried to put together the architecture of counterterrorism. And what we realized was that unlike the, the uh, 90s or the 80s, when an attack on the US would be a bomber or a missile and you had radar, <clears throat> in this case, an attack would be somebody coming in in the slipstream of tourists or visitors. So the question is, how do you detect them? What's the radar? And what we learned uh, by talking to the people in the private sector and in, in academia is that it's the data that gives you the warning. And in fact, we subsequently ran an experiment where we ran the 19 hijackers against some very basic databases that are available. And we saw that we would have been able to identify 15 of the 19 as connected to each other and to known terrorists if we'd used this kind of data back in 2001. So that was my introduction to building national security around the collection and analysis of data. And relatively 
minor amounts of data. Um, and you know, obviously there were debates about how do you collect and what are the limits on collecting and things of that sort. So I get out, and a few years later, Edward Snowden comes up with his revelations, and there's a big to-do about the collection of metadata. And I was at an event in um, Aspen with Merrill, and a, a well-known um, CEO of a tech company was on the stage, and he was criticizing the US government for the Snowden revelations. And I said to myself, wow, you guys collect <clears throat> more data than in, in their wildest fantasies intelligence agencies would ever imagine they could collect. And yet, and you're complaining about what the intelligence community is doing. They're trying to save your life. You're trying to sell stuff. Um, and then the other thing which resonated with me was I had um, had a meeting with somebody, and uh, a banker, and I was talking. We got on the subject of Google and Gmail, and I said, you know, um, in an automated way, Google reviews all your mail and the content, and they use that to advertise. And she got very quiet, and she said, well, that explains something. I said, what was it? She says, well, I'm in the middle of a divorce. I'm emailing my lawyer on Gmail, and I've been getting dating site ads. <clears throat> and I said to myself, wow, if I had, without a warrant, intercepted electronic communications between someone and their lawyer, I'd be in federal prison. So what I realized was there was a gross misunderstanding of what the government does. There was an even bigger misunderstanding of what the private sector does. But beyond that, the world of data has so changed, and the, the amount that's generated and collected and the way it's stored and analyzed is so much different than it was 10 or 15 years ago, that our entire legal framework <clears throat> is outmoded. And periodically, you have to sometimes say to yourself, are we going to continue to try to fit the new technology into the old rubric? Or do we finally say, you know what, maybe we need to reset the legal architecture. So when I went back and I, I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know, I was writing a little bit about this, I thought, well, where have we seen this historically? And as I talk about in the book, uh, you know, for the first 100 years or so of the United States, and before that, under the common law of England, your privacy was about property. If someone trespassed, that was illegal, unless they had a warrant. Um, but if you were doing things in public and people were collecting, that was not, too bad. You had no recourse. Um, and there were a couple of cases in the 19th century, in 20, early 20th century, that presented this issue. One is a case called Roberson versus Rochester Folding Box Company about a young woman who allowed her boyfriend to take a photograph, and then he sold it without her permission to a flower company, and they pasted it on the side of their flower bags. And she sued because she said, I didn't agree to this. And the court said, well, sorry, too bad. You're not being defamed. There's no falsehood. No one invaded your house. You don't have any recourse. Eventually, the courts changed their view and held that commercial appropriation of your image without your permission was a tort. Likewise, in wiretapping, initially, if you didn't penetrate into the wall or, or place something in the premises of the target, there was no Fourth Amendment violation if you were simply wiretapping public lines. And then, of course, cats changed that. So what I said was, I think we need to really explain to people what's going on with their data, 
um, the uses it's being, it, that's being applied, and really rethink from the ground up what is the legal architecture that ought to be gov governing the way we manage and handle all this data. Great. So uh, Glenn was here, Glenn Gerstel, uh, for lunch speaker, and he laid out his positions that he believes that the, the law is really not appropriately dealing with the current technological challenges. And one of the issues uh, came up in his talk and his and the discussions, and you've been, I think, a bit vocal about it, is the concept of encryption and whether or not the government should be able to have access to these encrypted messages. So what is your position? Because when you used to be a U.S. attorney, yeah. I think you had one perspective, but now that you are no longer in law enforcement, has that perspective changed? So let me be clear. I think if, if something is encrypted, and the government has the ability to decrypt it. The government, you know, assuming they have, you know, whatever appropriate legal authority is to access the communication, they should be able to decrypt it. I don't have a problem with that. My problem is when people say that, that the companies ought to be required to weaken encryption, put a backdoor in, or create a duplicate key, uh, require a duplicate key that the government would hold. Because there, the issue is not so much a privacy issue, as it is a security issue. If you weaken encryption for everybody in order to be able to decrypt a limited subset of communications, I think that's a very bad security trade-off. Now, sometimes I hear the argument, well, but we could do this in a way that nobody else would have access to the back door or the duplicate key. And then I open up the newspaper and I say, what do you know, there are a bunch of very sensitive tools that we're using for offensive cyber operations that are now for sale in the dark web. So obviously we were not able to keep control of the stuff that was even crown jewels. Why should I believe that the government can do that with respect to the duplicate key? So to me, this is a straight-off security trade-off. Um, I would rather most people be secure. And look at all the stuff we rely on. It's not just your messages, but encryption is at the core of what we're trying to do to protect our critical infrastructure. If people can break encryption because there's a duplicate key or a weakness, then your critical infrastructure becomes vulnerable. You could pay a much higher price. So to me, that's not worth it. Um, in the book, you lay out what you think are the five approaches you want to take for the law. And, and the last one, you talk about that the law must incentivize private parties to collaborate with government in protecting against shared vulnerabilities. And I would say, the idea of public-private sharing is something we've been discussing for, yeah. I think, since you were in your you know, mid-30s. So what is the issues that you think are the appropriate incentives that if you had the power, you would say, we need this in order to have appropriate private partnership? I think, actually, it's a pretty simple tweak. Um, I think the problem is uh, it's very hard to get a clearance in the private sector if you're, if you're not a contractor. So the people that we designate to be running the critical infrastructure can't get cleared to see the stuff that would explain a little bit more about what the threats are. And that's not because they can't pass the clearance test in terms of their reliability, but it's because there's a, an additional requirement called suitability, which is you have to have a need to know. And contractors always get that because they have a need to know. I would argue that people who run critical infrastructure have a need to know. So if you could disseminate 
sensitive information more broadly, um, I think that would help an awful lot. It also would answer the issue that sometimes you hear from the private sector, which is, well, you want us to tell you what's going on, but we don't get anything back from you. We just get a thank you. So um, I do think that's a pretty modest tweak that would go some distance in encouraging this. So as you know, we in the IC are not known for being good sharers. Right. Uh, we sort of failed that in the uh, in grade school. Yeah. Uh, but the other issue is, is that usually what you hear is, we in the community are nervous about sharing that information because it's a vulnerability that we're exploiting against our adversaries. And if we give that information up, and it's clear that who we share with will then take steps, or averages will see that must be an issue. So that tension yeah. about structural vulnerabilities or zero days that we're exploiting is part of the reason why we don't want to share. Do you think there should be well, you, a time you, limit? Do you think for the ecosystem yeah. we should do it? What's your I mean, there, there, well, there's this, in theory, a vulnerabilities equities process. It's supposed to weigh the um, risk of the vulnerability versus the benefit of being able to exploit it. Um, and I would say in general, and again, I think we, we, we overweight offense against defense in this environment. Um, I would say, you know, there used to be a theory that we wouldn't share something that nobody but we could exploit. I think we probably overestimate the singularity of our ability to do that. So I would argue that for broad-based vulnerabilities that have huge potential if they get out to compromise critical systems, I, I think there's got to be a strong presumption of sharing. Now look, if somebody was able to find a vulnerability in a laptop that was ordered by Kim Jong-un for his private use, I'd say have fun with it. Don't disclose it. But again, it goes back to the same issue with encryption. Not to sacrifice the security of the many in order to make it easier in individual instances to exploit something. So our, this town's getting pretty exercised about China. So the town is breaking down to, we say, you know, either a, a panda hugger or a dragon slayer. Where do you break? Are you a panda hugger or a dragon slayer? I, I wouldn't say I'm a panda hugger. I mean, I, I um, so let me step back and say this. <laughs> when I look, our two global rivals or adversaries of Russia and China. The Russians, in the short term, from a tactical standpoint, are much more disruptive. Um, that's partly because they don't have a long game. Demographically and economically, um, they can only run the string out so long because the demographics work, out, work against them. And I don't see the world clamoring to buy Russian products, except for maybe vodka. The, the, Chi the Chinese have a much longer game, and they're much more strategic. And I think in that sense, although tactically they're not as disruptive as the Russians, uh, they're a longer-term strategic rival. Um, I do think we have been late to recognize that the Chinese are playing, I said this at the table, um, the Chinese are playing Go and we're playing checkers. We've tended to look at the rivalry in a very narrow band, military intelligence, they're using economic tools. They're using the technology. They're trying to become the leaders in artificial intelligence. So I do think we need to um, step back and be much more strategic and use more of our tools. To me, that means several things. I, I, I think I publicly uh, um, applauded the legislative change that broadens 
CFIUS's ability to look at Summa. all kinds of different investments that might give, for example, the Chinese companies access to our technology or even our personal data, which is now becoming itself a strategic asset. Because um, I do think we, were, we took too narrow a view of what CFIUS ought to do, and I thought that when yeah. I was on CFIUS. Um, so I think that's one thing. I do think it's also appropriate to ask to what extent we can afford to have critical elements of the supply chain manufactured in China. Um, and we need to understand what the risks are and to take countermeasures against that. I'm not interested in steel tariffs or stuff like that, but the technology issues, I think, are very, very critical. So, you know, we say, and there's a number of people in the room who have written on this issue, and it's hard, is that we're sort of in a, a knife fight on cyber yeah. with a variety of our adversaries. And that we say it isn't that they're just eating our lunch. We appear to be making the lunch, and then they're eating it. Yeah. And um, you advise a lot of companies. What is, what is your approach about how you explain to major players what they should be doing to lock down their cybersecurity? So first of all, you know, I try to manage people's expectations. <laughs> if you think you're never going to get hacked, you're delusional. Everybody gets hacked. The question is how long the adversary is in your system and what damage they can do. If you can detect them quickly and shut them down, then it's basically not a big deal. If they're dwelling in there for months, then it is a big deal. So, um, and the reason I say this is because I think a lot of companies are so overwhelmed with the challenge and the number of people trying to sell them stuff. I mean, they're like, hundreds of companies with cyber solutions. Almost all of them have the word blue and fire in the name. <laughs> and, um, and no one, no mortal can figure out what to buy. So what we try to do is say, look, what are your key assets? What are the policies and structures you set up that balance what you need to have as an outward-facing, open um, access to the network at large versus things that you really can segregate? And then when you put together a strategy and an architecture and a set of policies, then you can buy the technology that allows you to implement it. So to me, it's all about empowering people to have a realistic sense of what they can achieve. And the example I always give is this. Your body is configured to keep a lot of bad stuff out, viruses and bacteria, but it doesn't keep everything out. <clears throat> you do get viruses and bacteria penetrate every day. And your immune system is designed to characterize whether this is harmful. And then if it is, it, it kills it. And if you're a healthy person, you'll get sick a little bit. But then eventually you'll recover. And you'll actually be, be better off because you'll have developed an immunity. In fact, you could argue immunization is information sharing. We're sharing with the immune system the code on, on the flu virus. So when you think about it that way, your metric shouldn't be, did I never get sick? that I never get infected. Because if you went to the doctor and asked for that, he'd laugh at you. It should be, did I manage the infection? Did I recover? And was there no lasting damage? And if you view success in that light, then I think you feel empowered to do what you need to do. So one of the issues of the immune system that we have a little bit differently inside our system is the insider threat. And you mentioned Snowden, and we've had a variety of problems. And as you know, there's a huge effort to lock down that insider threat yeah. and what that means for transparency and privacy for government officials and employees. 
are you concerned about what we understand as privacy anymore, given what we're going to be doing for that transparency when we start to have continuous monitoring of individuals? Is that well, I, a concern I, I, yeah. or? I'll say this. I mean, I would say if you are working on sensitive programs for the government, you do have to understand that you're going to be sacrificing privacy. I mean, I think that's, that's realistic. Um, I think there are things you can do with behavioral analytics in terms of people's behavior on the web and inside a, net, a particular network that are very, very useful tools. But, um, you know, there are some, some things you accept as a, as a condition of employment. I mean, you know, many of us here filled out our background check things. Now they're all, probably all over in China somewhere with the OPM hack. Um, but the point is you were willing to sacrifice a good deal of, of privacy on that. Where I wouldn't want to see that is for the population at large. I think that's where you get into more sensitive issues about privacy. Well, you, well, as we said, the advantage have the Chinese having our SF-86s is, is that they have a better way of controlling them, so we can go up and actually find our <laughs> stuff, which yeah, I know. is so, always complicated when it would be. But when you say that, as you know, um, the social media have extraordinary sets of information. Yeah. And the issue, which an issue you used to be quite concerned about when you were secretary, was the issue of this domestic terrorism. Yeah. And the social media under the Decency Act, Section 230, they do not have responsibility the way we normally do for publishers. Are you someone that thinks that that has to change, that the 230 exception has to be looked at, or that's uh, an important aspect of the system we're living in, and they so have this, that option? Yeah, this came up um, about three hours ago, Freedom House, which I'm, of which I'm chairman, issued its report on freedom of the net, and we had a session at the Dutch Embassy. And I'll tell you what I said to everybody there. Um, the original model, <coughs> the tech companies were like AT&T. We just give you the pipes and the wire, and we're not responsible for what you do on them. I think that's um, a misunderstanding of what's going on. There are some tech companies that fit that model. If you are making products, like smartphones, and you know the phone is basically a, an empty shell with hardware and software, and then you populate it. And then the product manufacturer doesn't do anything more except maybe run, run the wireless. I totally agree that's 230. When you're talking about social media platforms, they are curating the data in order to find things that are attractive to marketers, because their business model is your data. Once you get in the business of curating the data, you are no longer simply a conduit. You are an editor. So I think what we ought to say about those platforms is, look, <clears throat> you are not um, mere conduits. You are exercising editorial control. As editors, you should get a fair amount of First Amendment protection, just as the editorial board of the Washington Post mm -hmm. or the New York Times gets. But you're not totally absolved of responsibility. You do have some responsibility. Now, you know how that actually works in practice in terms of the volume of things that are posted and how you can be held to review it are, are practical issues. But I do think you can't really seriously argue um, if, you're a, if you're a social media platform that you're not an editor when you're using the data and selling the data precisely for the purpose of maximizing someone's monetizing. So it sounds to me like you're saying you would not be opposed to some regulation changing that 230 status depending on how they were using the data. Exactly. And I would say, and I would say in that circumstance, we ought to migrate the model to 
the model of an editorial board of a newspaper, right. where you do get a lot of protection, but you're not totally free of any responsibility. So on that issue, as you know, a hot topic for our world is Carpenter and that case. Do you have thoughts about how Carpenter was decided? And if you had been on a Supreme no. Court justice, would you, where would you have been on one of those five well, opinions? I, and I said this in the book about Jones and yeah. Riley, and I, I, you know, I was trying to wrestle with, can I delay publishing until Carpenter's decided? And the publisher said no, so I tried to hedge it a little bit. Um, I, thought, I thought all these things were, were all these cases were uh, indicative of what I think is a sensible trend. To go back to what I said earlier about Roberson and, and Katz, which is the court starts to look at the technology and say, you know, um, the premise of our prior law has been so changed that we need to revisit it. So to me, um, you know, the rule used to be public is public, you have no rights. But that was in a day, day when the technology was limited in the sense that, yeah, you know, you could surveil a person, but there was limited by human resources. You could take pictures, but there were limited number of pictures you could take. You couldn't combine all the data. So there was what I called information friction. Over a period of time, what you did in public would wind up becoming less and less accessible, and only a small number of people at, at all would be able to see it. <clears throat> that is totally different in a world in which you could be surveilled 24-7 easily, not just by the police, but by private companies, by people who are you know, in restaurants and things like this. So to me, that changes whether we need to have some protection for data that's generated in public. So to me, Jones, which had to do with um, uh, you know, locational data, following people around, mm -hmm. even though it went off on the attachment of a device on a car, most of the justices said it was broader mm -hmm. than that. Uh, you know, Riley, which dealt with a cell phone, and Carpenter, I think those are rightly decided. And um, I know an issue that's percolating up is the border search exception. So when I was in office, our view was, if you cross the border, the government has a right to look at anything you bring across, um, and you know because that you're bringing something into the country. And we won and lit we litigated that, and we won it. And I think it was correct as it relates to laptops and um, phones, but only because we were operating in the era before the cloud. Now, when the cloud came. Then what ha I said to myself was, well, wait a second. Now what's on your phone isn't the data you're bringing into the country. It is basically the key to the data that may already be here sitting in Amazon web servers. So if I say that I can search your phone at the border as a matter of border search law, what I'm really saying is this. If you cross the border and you have your house key in Washington, I can go to your house and use the key to open the house and search the house. We would never accept that. So you see there, I think, again, the law has to change because the technology has fundamentally changed the presumption. So the ABA is struggling with uh, that very topic. Guys like Steve and Ben are involved in commenting, so I'm sure they will may have some thoughts or questions. But I guess my last question before I open it up is, um, as secretary, you had to deal with the whole immigration issue. And that's become a hot-button issue <coughs> currently. What would have, what would have, what, what do you think, if you were still secretary, how you would be approaching this immigration issue that's the hot button topic? So, so the way, you know, I mean, I, I think the reform that we tried to do in 2007 is still the right answer. 
Um, I would look at this as a system. What's a little different now than what I faced is I think more of the migration from Latin America is driven not by economic concerns, but literally by fear of a total breakdown of law and order and, and government control. So the right way to deal with a system like that is you start at the, at the sending country. And what you do is you invest in economic development, you help those countries build the rule of law, you help them repair their judiciary. Because the truth is if people are safe, they're not gonna, most of them are not going to want to come up here. Um, and if you can build healthy societies in other parts of the hemisphere, that's going to diminish a lot of the issue. Then to the extent people are still going to come looking for jobs, I would, you know, what we talked about doing was creating a legal pathway for people to come and get visas to work. Um, and then, you know, you, you, as we did, you have border security that prevents people to come illegally. You basically say, look, there's an easy way and a hard way. The easy way is you, we give you a visa, you come work, we, you're identified, you pay your taxes, we know where your employer is. The hard way is you try to sneak across and we catch you and we send you back. That's kind of what I think the solution is. So and everybody who's looked at this over the last 20 years probably agrees. So what I hear is you saying is you be increasing the USAID budget. Absolutely. In order to spend as much as you can for rule of law in these countries. Yep, it is short-sighted to say foreign aid and, and overseas assistance is taking money away from us. That is a direct investment in our security, whether it's immigration or whether it's trying to contest with the Chinese that want to get control of the, you know, the critical minerals. Um, that, that is a terrific tool, and we're really short sight. We're really cutting off our nose to spite our face if we cut that budget. Great. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. To hear the Q&A that followed this conversation, visit us online at americanbar.org slash natsecurity, where you can watch and listen to the conference panels. You can also find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at our website, as well as in the notes to this podcast. Feel free to drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. We'll also be posting registration information for our March 5th breakfast with Corinne Stone, so please check us out. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.